With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You actually say the opposite of ego, which is kind of a a formula for success, is to be humble in your aspirations, gracious in your success, and resilient in your failures. But how do you cultivate those? Thoughts are not facts. Thoughts are just thoughts. I realized that I've created this very rigid definition of the universe, like rules that I then insisted on following all the time. To some extent, you say ego is the enemy. It seems like it's the enemy of a lot of things. But one thing it's probably the enemy of almost the most is curiosity. This is the hard part of writing and doing books that nobody talks about either. It's not what you do when you sit down to write. That's more the easy part. It's the figuring out what you're going to write and what's the best way to do it. That's the difference between a book that sells 10,000 copies and a book that sells a million copies. So Ryan Holiday, how many times have you been on this podcast? This is three? Three, yeah. We had you on with Obstacles the Way. Yeah. Or no, no, we had you on Trust Me, I'm Lying. Yeah, when when it was a Skype, po- when it was, it wasn't even a real podcast yet, I don't yeah, think. I think you were like pre. You had a co-host. No, no, that was on, oh yeah, maybe I did in the very beginning, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Let's forget about that for a second. <laughs> I forgot about that. But you, you, you've written a bunch of books, Obstacle is the Way, Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is like a classic now in marketing. Obstacle is the Way, which is sort of a modern look at stoicism. Um, growth Hacker Marketing, which was was not as, I don't think that was intended to be as popular. That wasn't like a, ma- a big book. You wouldn't intend that to be a big book, but it's it's an interesting book to read if you're building a business. Yeah, it was supposed to be this like Kindle ebook experiment, and then now it's sold like 50,000 copies and great. in 10 languages. It was totally crazy, and it it was why publishing should experiment more. Like I thought this was going to be this tiny little thing, so we put it out there, and then it did well. Then it became a bigger thing, which is not how most things are done, sadly. So, so... We're going to talk about your upcoming book, Ego is the Enemy, um, which, by the way, I've read now twice, and I think, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, I think it's your best book ever by far, and of course I've enjoyed your other books, but this one I thought you were the most personal about your story, and in a weird way, this was the most actionable in terms of like living me taking this advice and applying it, seeing how it applies to my own life. Do Do you feel this is like your... I mean, maybe everyone says this about their latest book, but like, do you feel this is your best book ever or continuation of what you start with, Obstacles the Way? Well, I think you want everything that you do to be the best thing that you're capable of and also better than what you did before. So I was very conscious of that, but I was also trying to be not conscious of that in the sense that I sold this book before Obstacle came out. Like, I wasn't sure how it would do, so I think I was like hedging my bets a little bit. And then that way I was like, I was hard at work on this book when the sales and the response of the other book came in, so I could kind of ignore it a little bit. And I just, I was just focusing on getting this, this very hard thing out of myself. And because it, it wasn't a super fun book to write, this book, Ego is the Enemy. It was much more painful. Why? It, 
Well, I I feel like obstacle was it's somewhat inspiring to think about like how do you overcome these things that are out there. It's more probing and unpleasant to have to look at the parts about yourself that you have to fix. Well, I remember, I just I want to talk about you personally for a second, and then okay. we'll talk about the book. Yeah. By the way, here's what I like about the book: you had so many good kind of quotes and sayings and phrases and advice in here. I almost don't know where to start in terms of, I kind of want to go through, we can't go through all of them, but I want to go through some of them and just have you explain and we'll talk about it. But, um, I have the I, time. We can, we can go through all of them. I, I want to talk about you personally. Okay. Cause, um, and you start, you get into your story and the introduction and everything. But when I, I first met you, like whatever, three or four years ago, you did have an ego. I you did? Were, yeah, you were a little bit arrogant. Okay. So I'm going to call you out a little Please. bit. Please. I'm sure other people must have told you that around that time. Uh, a, a little bit, but I think for the m- most part, I... W- I mean, you were very is- smart, and that fueled it. Yeah, but I was... I think, I think I've gotten away with the fact that I'm maybe less arrogant than other arrogant people my age. So that could I'm, be. I'm like not as bad. Yeah, so you just know? to be clear, you were head of marketing for American Apparel, the, the big clothing company, when you were 19 years old. Then you were It was like, a little later than that. I was like 21 or 22, but very young. Yeah, and then you were an assistant to some of my favorite authors, of course, Robert Greene, Tim Ferriss, Tucker Max. You were, you were a research assistant. You helped them market their books. You had a book marketing agency. You helped me market Choose Yourself, which has been a mammoth success for me. Uh, you helped me actually with this podcast. You helped you introduced yeah. me to a ton of guests for this podcast. So, so you, I think kind of a big theme, and this is related to ego as the enemy, but a big theme of your career has been to uh, do things for others more than it seems you do things for yourself. Yeah, I, I mean that's one of the things I I talked about in the book because it was how I tried to be successful, which is. If you're not so concerned with credit and you're concerned with helping people that you like do what they do, you become a pretty valuable commodity. So I, I, I was, I tried to get good at being like the guy behind the scenes um, who could give ideas that the other person could steal, you know, and or that I could do. I loved because when I mean I didn't have anything really to offer in terms of like to the world so i could say like hey you have all you you know this author this brand you have all this stuff if we arrange them this way i think it could accomplish this or it would get this kind of attention so i was i was like playing with their chess pieces i think i think that's a good description like when we were talking about the marketing for choose yourself for instance uh it was hard to say where who was coming up with the ideas, who was coming up with the execution, like you were like an equal partner in kind of figuring out the marketing for that. But I just remember thinking like, because you were like 25 then or something, yeah. or 24, and you were just uh, like a steamroller. So I, I apologize for saying you were arrogant, but there was definitely like, well, yeah, you what could do you not mean? be what, denied. So what did I do? It was that I... I thought I was right, or was it that I, I think you were? I think you were thought you were right on everything. But to be fair, you probably were right on everything. Like you had a very concise way of explaining things, and and you know, but you were forceful about it. Yeah, you, you, I mean, that's you a, couldn't be disagreed with. That's something that I've tried to work on and think about. It's that sometimes I don't realize that the assumptions that I take for granted as being very obvious, like so all the. Th- like I thought about this thing for like two seconds, so I'm sort of putting it out there, but I'm taking for granted all the assumptions about the world that went into that thing. 
And so it's coming off as being flippant when really it's not as flippant. And I've I've gotten that criticism from my editor in in my books, and I've tried to work on that. It's that like I'm I'm just stating this as a fact instead of explaining how I came to learn I, I came to learn this fact. And that makes when you do that. If you do explain where you come from, it makes the thought less intimidating and more relatable. Well, I think that's what makes this my favorite book of your books because finally you get in a much more into your personal story in a very non-arrogant way, in a very um, like here's where I've made mistakes sort of way. Uh, and you know, I think when you do that, you know, vulnerability is this way to uh, have people relate to you and attract readers in. And I think it's very powerful. And you're able to weave your story in with all the story of all these people who are your either heroes or research subjects or whatever. So, well, I really didn't. I mean, maybe this was my ego that I didn't want to do that at all. Like uh, the original version of the draft. I mean, people who read the book, they'll see it starts with a little bit of my story, and then it goes into the book. And I'm not in the book itself. And then I'm I show it, I'm in the um, the prologue and the epilogue. And I didn't want to, I only wanted to be in the epilogue. So I wanted like the mm. book to stand totally on its own. And then it's like, hey, if you'd like some additional context, you can read about what I've experienced. Yeah, but I think it's very powerful that you put your story in the prologue because first off, I learned some things about you. Like you mentioned, of course, American Apparel and Robert Greene and Tim Ferriss. I didn't know, what's the talent agency you worked for? I worked for a company called The Collective, which is a, oh, yeah, a management yeah. agency in Beverly Hills. I actually signed um, the first YouTube client that they ever signed, which then became a thing called the Collective Digital Studio, which sold for $100 million last year. Uh, so I was very I was very early to... The, it was like I had this b- very brief interlude uh, of a side career until I was sort of unceremoniously fired. You've had this amazing career, and a lot of it, I can see, has sort of kind of congealed into this book, uh, Ego is the Enemy. Why did you decide to write about ego specifically. Because I always think when someone writes a book, like I wrote yeah. this book, The Power of No, not because I'm such so great at saying no, actually the opposite. I kind of had to work through my own issues with saying no when writing The Power of No. Do you kind of feel that happened a little here as you were doing the research? And, and yeah. you said this was a painful book to write. Yeah. Oh, and I, I remember what I was going to say. So like that thing happened to me where I have, I have to go to the hospital because I, I messed up, I got yelled at, I couldn't handle getting yelled at, you know, all these things. But nobody knows that that stuff happened, right? That, that's not what you... I was writing a blog at the time. I didn't turn around and write a blog post about this humiliation or this thing that I couldn't handle. And so, you know, when, you're, when, you, when you have success, it sort of coalesces into a public narrative. But all the, all the unpleasant parts of that narrative are obscured from people. And, I think... And that's really true. Like, I noticed... I mean, particularly, I kind of was originally writing in the finance industry. Now I don't. But I would go on CNBC with all the other pundits or whatever, yeah. and you're really not allowed to say you don't know something. Yeah. And so when I started writing like publicly about my failures, it was around 2010, people literally thought I was either going to kill myself or it was like watching a, a, a train wreck happening in real time. Like, that's what people would say to me. Yeah. And, but at, and in the end, I ended up developing a much wider audience because I was just simply being honest and nobody else is honest. Like, it's just this kind of patchwork of successes and everybody forgets the fact that we all fail. Yeah, or that we're scared, or that we cry, or that we have no idea what we're doing, or that we messed up. And, like, you only talk about your successes. You don't really talk about your failures that much. But uh, to go to your other question, I I think what I... So I was writing... So obviously, Obstacle is about external obstacles. And then I sat down to write a book 
I get a lot of emails from young people, and I most of them are probably the same reaction that you got from me, the arrogance of a, that I was young and I was so certain about things I get. And I'm like, who are these people, you know, even though they're only a couple years younger than me. And so I wanted to talk about, like, what what does it take to be six? Like, how does a young person work with people who are twice their age and get treated as an equal? Like, how do you navigate the how do you navigate the temptations of success or uh, the the responsibilities and the stress that come along with it? That's where, where I was coming from, and I kept I kept um, sort of zooming not zooming in but circling around this idea of humility. And so originally, I was going to write a book about humility. That's what I was thinking about. Because um, I think it's really interesting and it's underrated, um, and it's a philosophical concept that I find very fascinating. But what I found was that that was that makes for a very boring book. Also, there's a kind of um, irony or whatever when you call, uh, let's say you call a book humility. Yes. Like if someone says, "Oh, I'm the most humble person ever," then there's a contradiction a little bit. Yeah, and humility is not very inspiring, right? We tend to think humility is the attitude of people who don't accomplish things, right? You know, I. Like humility is is uh, the word literally means like loneliness, right? That's what we think of, of humility. And so I, I I kept thinking about it, and what's the uh, read books about humility, and I didn't find any that felt like prescriptive or helpful. And so I, what I was realizing is that I, I want okay. So what's the opposite of humility? Ego is the opposite of humility. Ego is what makes not just humility impossible; it makes all the things that I was talking about in obstacle impossible. So. Then I was like, okay, the book is about ego. And, and this so, is the hard part of writing and doing books that nobody talks about either. Like, it's not what you do when you sit down to write. That's more the easy part. But it's the figuring out what you're going to write and what's the best way to do it that's the difference between a book that sells 10,000 copies and a book that sells a million copies. But So I zoomed in on ego, and then one day, I, I don't remember what was happening, but just this idea of the ego being the enemy, that phrase just like came to me, and I was like, that's the book. And so, so how did you? How, first off, how do you define ego? Because you're sort of saying it's the opposite of humility. Yeah. But I'm gonna. I I know later on I'm gonna kind of challenge you on that a yeah. little bit, just because you you define it in a different way. Yeah. So, I felt like ego doesn't need to be defined because everyone knows what it is. But but some people could define it in a positive way. So you yes. you kind of strip out the that, positive elements that's to, to make your point. But but I mean I mean like I don't mean it in the Freudian sense, I don't mean it in the psychological sense. I mean it in the colloquial like that person has a huge ego sense, right? As opposed to that person has a kind of confident and strong ego so he can go out and accomplish things. You sort of particularly say ego is the negative Yes. She has a huge ego, whatever. Yes, and I, I make a distinction between ego and confidence, right? Confidence um, is something that you earn. Ego is wishful or delusional thinking. Um, ego, confidence is within the bounds of reality, and ego is when you step outside that. So I think confidence is very important, and I think what you were getting from me was there was certainly some ego in there, but it was also confidence and in the I, fact that I knew what I was doing. And I apologize a little bit. It wasn't like you were like, No, I want to hey, hear it. Like, uh, do what I say or else, like, uh, we're all out of here. It wasn't like that. It was just like you you were very confident um, and you weren't always, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it because it was like so long ago. I just remember thinking it because you weren't always as responsive as, uh, as you could have been. Well, so I, this is an interesting exchange, right? Because... Ego would be defensive and me, I, what are you talking about? You're wrong. And I think, let's say, let's say I disagree with you. 
I should still want to hear what you're saying and try to figure out why I was coming across as egotistical, right? And I think where ego in the sense that I'm defining it is sort of, I realize it's a somewhat vague uh, umbrella that I'm using, but you want to you want to be able, the idea that I could be coming off to you in a way differently than I'm acting in my head is a kind of self-awareness that is usually at odds with ego, right? So it's like people don't, like what's that, uh, is it Frank Luntz has that saying, like uh, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. Um, ego doesn't give a shit what people hear. It just matters. It just cares about what it's thinking. And so that attitude is not great if you're trying to do anything creative, if you're trying to do things with clients, if you're trying to do things um, that involve like allies or compromising, right? So I think ego is so dangerous in a world where you have to work with other people. You're trying to improve what you're doing. Um, you're, you're trying to reach an audience. Ego is a is a major sort of haze between you and what you're trying to accomplish. You know, it's funny because I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a very successful entrepreneur, and he doesn't know technology. From all the businesses he's built, he's never really been great at understanding the core insides of the business. But what he's really great at is putting together teams of people from all disparate parts of his life. He networks 20 hours a day, okay. sleeps the other four, but he's just constantly networking and then figuring out ways to connect people. And it's because he's nobody thinks he has any ego at all about it. Like sure. he's, just very, he's very solid about who he spends his time with like because that's his, that's his asset is who he spends his time with. And I think he's able to succeed. I mean, when I say success, like, I don't know, maybe he's worth like $100 million. Sure. And... He's able to build the success entirely by taking a step back and poking people up and then removing himself from the equation. Well, I mean, even just not knowing this person, even just the idea that, like, I'm not good at technology, that's not what I do. What I'm good at is connecting other people is a kind of self-awareness that enables him to be successful at that thing. Or he might even be good at technology, but I just said he wasn't good at sure. technology because I'm not— because he never, he always removes himself after the networking happens. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess I just mean like we. What often happens is like okay, so like um, you do something and you're successful. You start a company or you write a book, and you're successful for one reason. Maybe it's it was good timing, or you're successful because you did great marketing, or you're successful because you wrote in a way that had never been written before, but chances are you weren't successful because you did every single thing right. Well, the problem with ego is ego starts to tell yourself a story about, like, it, ego says, like, this success says something about me as a person, and it is a vindication that I am supremely talented and amazing and whatever. So then when you go to do that next thing, you don't, you no longer have an accurate understanding or accounting of what you're good at and what made that other thing successful and so you're much more likely to fail that second time it's so true like when i sold my first company this was the entire reason for my subsequent failures because i just assumed oh i have money in the bank i sold a business i must be smart at everything and it completely destroyed me and and so when like what i love about humility is humility says it when what's so resilient about a, a humble approach is that humility says this success doesn't say anything about me as a person, but also when I fail, it doesn't say anything about me either. I'm just me, and I'm 
out there interacting with the world, and sometimes I'm successful and sometimes a failure. But I think the problem is ego wants, in both good and bad situations, ego is convinced that you are, like, ego says, like, you're the car that you drive. It says you're how much money you have in the bank. It says you're a successful, powerful CEO, so you're a successful, powerful person who matters, you know? And it takes all these things to heart or to head, and then it can't, imagine a reality in which that's not true so and this is kind of the the crux of what you're of what the book's about and you give like a a gazillion examples and we'll go over a a bunch of them but essentially to be successful it's really important to kind of be aware of this and do everything you can to stop it but it's really hard like after that first success I had, what could I have done? So you actually say the opposite of ego, which is kind of a, a, a formula for success, is to be, you know, hu- you know, humble in your aspirations, gracious in your success, and resilient in your failures. It's ki- kind of like the, the three opposite, depending on where you are yeah. in life, aspiration, success, or failure, these are kind of the three opposites of ego. Yes. But how do you kind of, um, co- and, and you give many examples of where this works to achieve success or where not doing those three things will achieve failure. But how do you cultivate those? Like I can say, oh, I'm going to be gracious in success, but a lot of people act gracious but aren't gracious and aren't even aware that they're gra- they're, they're not gracious. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. So one of the, I don't know if this totally answers your question, but one of the things that motivated me to do all those things was um, fear. Like I was, so I was successful early, but then I was always scared it was going to get like taken away or I'd mess up. And so I was scared of like, yeah, what's that saying? It's like you should be cool to the people on the way up because you don't know who you're going to meet on the way down. Right. Like I, it's really true. Yeah, <laughs> and and I just knew it was like okay, like I'm 20 years old and I'm like talking to this multi platinum band. Like this is not normal. Every and what's that mathematical pr- principle? It's like everything regresses to the mean. It was like at some point this is going to even out. Like I'm just I. I'm just ahead right now, but it'll probably even out. That was like what I was thinking all the time. So I was like, I want to make sure that I'm not the reason that things regress to the mean or that I I don't want to do anything now that's going to come back and bite me if stuff like goes back to normal. So I was like, I never wanted to brag about what I was doing and I never wanted to act like I was entitled to stuff and I never wanted to... Um, I never wanted to behave in a way that would hasten that sort like someone, you know what, you get out of here. Like you had your chance, you messed it up. Like we're going to invest in the next person. Like I just was really scared about that. So I was always thinking, like when I was aspiring to something, I was like, I'm going to keep what I want to do to myself. And I'm just going to try to take advantage of as much as I can right now. And then when it, when I'm ready to pursue my thing, like to be a writer, that's when I'm going to that's when that's going to come into play. Or when I had success, I wanted to think like, you don't know how long this is going to last. Life is long. You know, there's unpredictable things happen all the time. So I wanted to think about that. And then when I've gone through difficult situations, I just, I wanted to think the same thing. You never know when things are going to turn around. Well, talk about like, what what did you do then when you, after that point when you were 20 and you were kind of like riding high, what 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 was the next difficult situation that happened and how how did you deal with it? Yeah, so... Uh, there, there was a bunch. I mean, I, I, so I, I worked at the collective, and <laughs> I don't know if I've told this story. So I was working at the collective. Things were going well. Collective is the one that kind of spun out of CAA. Mm, uh, they, it was their main guys. It was guys from the firm. Okay. 
Um, and the firm was one that spun. I don't maybe, I don't know my this is before my of time, talent agency. But it was a it was a huge talent agency. Okay. And um I remember I I was things were going well and there was some so, somehow be, somehow one of the partners had become convinced that I was like plotting against him because and I found out later it was because I always had a copy of the 40 laws of power on my desk. Hmm. Um but that you was were working be, with Robert I was Green. working with Robert Green and so he he was uh it I'd, I'd like generated some a powerful enemy who was like looking for me to screw up on something and I didn't screw up on this thing but he it was like a trumped up charge and I was like basically pushed out and I was so it was like wait this is what I dropped out of school for like I'm it's over right and um ended up happening I I I moved on to American Apparel shortly thereafter but it was it, there was this moment where it was like all, I'm I'm got to go back to school. Like that was that was the one of the considerations. So there's moments like that. I mean, um, American Apparel had some ups and downs. I, I so, worked, so how did you kind of overcome that though? To say, okay, instead of going back to school, I'm going to look for other opportunities like maybe American Apparel. Yeah, or it was I've got this. It's like I was doing three things. Now I have two things, which means I need to focus on those two things twice as hard. Hmm. So I I don't know. This is. I've not. I've tried not to think that much about this stuff. So you're making me think. I guess. Um, <coughs> That's okay. Take your time. Yeah. Think it out. <laughs> I don't, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at American Apparel, we um, there was there was this one controversy where I'd I'd been in discussions with the CEO, the CFO. We were talking about something, and uh, I was he was supposed to like uh, interview this reporter. Or, sorry, he was supposed to do an interview with this reporter. And um, he 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 hadn't done it. He kept blowing it off. And I was like, dude, like you're supposed to, to talk to this person. And he was like, I'm sorry. I'm a little busy. We almost went bankrupt yesterday. And he was being like, uh, he was exaggerating. But he was basically just saying like, I don't care about what you are nagging me about. I deal with real important things. And he was totally right. But but wait, uh, but, I, mean, I want you to finish the story. Yeah. But doesn't that sh- exhibit a little bit of ego? Like, of course, yeah, of course. How could he have dealt with his inclination to have ego? Well, I mean, this is where this—he could have called me and talked to me about it. He could have acknowledged, "Hey, I know I told you I was going to do this thing, and I didn't." And that's all we're really discussing here. We're not like I think what happens in a lot of these discussions is. You go, this person is challenging me, and they're saying they're more important than me. And oftentimes, that subtext is totally your projection. And I do that a lot, too. Like, we we get in these dick-measuring contests for no reason. And then it's like, once the other person does it, then we have to do it. And, and so now, all of a sudden, he this we both are on the same team, and we both agree about what's important but I don't know what's going on with his life, and he doesn't know what's going on in my life. And so now all of a sudden we're, like, fighting with each other instead of dealing with our own stuff. Right, so 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 kind of like the addition of ego to a situation where you were both on the same team. Totally. totally has made the uh, additional, the, the one plus one doesn't equal three anymore. One plus one equals zero or, or less than zero. Yeah, and also email is, like, the worst medium to ever do these things because all your insecurities come out in what you project into yeah, the tone point. and the other person's thing. But anyways, what happened was somehow, uh, I, what later came to be was that uh, a lawyer who was suing the company, um, their client or someone related to that client broke into my email and then leaked those emails to the media. Um, 
Gawker picked it up. CNBC picked it up. It was Christmas Eve. I was at uh, my. I didn't know this. I was at my in-laws' house, and I get an email from a CNBC reporter, forwarding back that email exchange to me, asking what's going on. Like they were like, "I just got this. What is going on? Like why?" Particularly did the tell CFO, me? when the CFO of a public company says, "We yes. almost went bankrupt yes. yesterday." Yes. That's like a huge material event that could have been. You oh, know, it, if he that, was serious, it was something that had yes. needed to be press released. And so the media like immediately picked up on it. It was and and so it was like I remember thinking in that moment like, okay, I I stepped on a landmine. I've blown myself up. Like I'm going to be starting over here very shortly. And I mean, from and and it was like, okay, like I I you could compare that to the moment where I got eviscerated, right? And it's like maybe three years have passed, but I didn't have a panic attack. And I just, I, I remember thinking like, okay, this is really bad. This is, I don't know how this happened, right? Because I don't, at this point, I have no idea how my email was accessed. Um, I don't know if I did something wrong or if someone else did something wrong. Like maybe I accidentally forwarded it. But I just remember thinking like, okay, this is, this is bad, but I'm probably not going to die, and I'm going to... Now I just have to... Part of what stoicism is, what I love about it so much, is it's this idea of, okay, this happened, well, what am I going to do about it? And it's focusing as much of your energy as possible on what you're going to do about the situation rather than how unfair or bad the situation was. It turned out Dove was like, look, we all say private things in our emails. Like, I don't care. You didn't do anything wrong. Like, I wouldn't want my emails to get stolen. It was was a very, it it was uh, a moment where I saw really good leadership um, embodied as an example in front of me. He could have fired me on the spot. Well, that's an interesting one because uh, Dove, you focus on his examples of having kind of this this darker side, this egotistical side later in the Mm -hmm. the book. And you kind of talk about his crashing and burning. Yeah. But but also there's kind of a positive side to that, like this sort of energy that allowed him to create the company, which also caused this huge ego. He was able, at least for a while, there was a window where he became a valuable mentor to you. Like, and I don't know if this is the case for other mentors you've had, but you've had a lot of really good mentors. And and you know, from Tucker, Tim Ferris, Robert Green, Dove, whoever else, uh, what do you think are the the best things you've you've learned from these guys overall? Yeah, we're all complicated. So e- the, someone like Dove is a cautionary tale in a lot of ways in that he built a company that he was then fired from and then, you know, destroyed essentially um, and, and is now, you know, had to declare bankruptcy. Dove but, had to declare bankruptcy? No, no, the, oh, company, the company declared did. bankruptcy. And I, I know he's stated in a lot of interviews that he's not doing great financially, um, which I, you know, I take no uh, relish in. I, I, I wish him the best. But he's also uh, a leader who taught me so much about marketing and about how to how to work with people and how to like that he didn't fire me on the spot is something I'm very grateful for and that I appreciate and I understand now that I, people work for me how hard that that that's not your first instinct your first instinct is when when an employ when two employees say something that they shouldn't have said over email and then that is leaked to the media and then your stock price takes a significant hit because of it and all of a sudden you have to explain that you're not actually going bankrupt like 
you're not like, oh, how would I act? It's hard to have empathy in that situation, but he did, which I thought was very impressive. But with the mentors that I've had, I think one of the things that I— they all cared about their craft probably more than anything else. Like, So they put—and and again, this is related to the ego. You think yeah. at some point, at least with all of them, they put craft before their ego, before being known or famous or whatever. Yeah, like take someone like Kanye West. Obviously has an enormous ego. But clear—like you cannot get as good as he's gotten at his, his main job, which is cr- creating music— if you're not incredibly humble and dedicated towards what you do. Like, you know how it is when you're writing a book. Like, having a big, sweeping, grand idea, that's the easy part. It's the going over the draft 700 times and tweaking time. It's all the hundreds of hours that you spend on the manuscript. And that mindset is the one commonality, I think, behind all successful people is that they subsume their identity into a piece of work. And I, like... Robert Green is Robert Green could make probably millions of dollars consulting and advising companies, but he would rather write books that will stand the test of time. And so that was like a very powerful example for me. Um, I I think that one. I'll, I'll flip this around. One of the things that like having a mentor or apprenticing under someone one one of the things that's really helpful for is like you know you're not the best. Because, like, you wake up every day and work for someone who is better than you, right? And so for me, having this period of five or six years where as good as I got at whatever I got, they were always one or two steps ahead of me. And that was inherently humbling and inherently well, what's, keeps What's an example jo- where you saw them one or two steps ahead of you, like where you were impressed? Oh, he's thought of that and he's ahead. Yeah, it would be like, I have an idea. Here's exactly what we should do. And they'd be like, I like your idea. It's not possible because X, Y, and Z. It's like they were, I was thinking two-dimensional and they were thinking four-dimensional. They knew legal, like, it's like I was really good at marketing, but, and Dove was really good at marketing, but Dove also knew design and photography and sales. So, like, what's a specific example there? Because I do think American Apparel's marketing campaigns, like, five years ago or six years ago were unbelievable. They they are unbelievable. And he's a, he's a, I mean, I think New York is a less interesting place with fewer American apparels and fewer American apparel billboards. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, Dove knew, like, I can't, like, if you gave me a collection of American apparel photos, I could not instinctively tell you, like, uh, let's say it's, you know, you do a shoot with a model, you're going to take 100 photos of the same thing. I have not cultivated the taste or the mastery to be able to tell you the difference between those hundred photos, right? Like I can know, oh, her eyes are closed. Like you can't do that one. But Dove knows because he's seen so many hundreds of thousands of them, he would know instinctively like the difference between an okay one and an amazing one. And so you just realize like um, there's a quote, I've used it a couple of times now, but and it's in the book, um, I think it's from John Wheeler where he's saying, as your island of knowledge grows, your ocean of ignorance grows with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's really interesting. And I think it's it, as good as you get at things, if, you, if you've attached yourself to a master, you realize they're getting good too. And, and that you're just realizing there's more and more that you need to know or don't know. And that's, I think, very critical 
The worst thing that could have happened to me is that like at 22, I became my own boss because I would have stopped growing right there. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Well, it's interesting to me what you just said about Robert Greene, too, where he could make, you know, X number of dollars doing something else, but he just loves doing this one thing. Yeah. Because you and I have had this discussion literally since the first day we've met. I, in my own ego, I would give you advice and tell you you should start this agency, build it up, get a lot of clients, sell it, make your first, you know, yeah. X number of dollars, and then figure out what you want to do. And I think you kind of tried a little bit of that, and you were unhappy. Yeah. And you took a totally different route, which it seems to have made you a lot happier. So I think so. I don't so. know. I don't know. Like what? 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 Since we haven't really talked directly about this, other than me yeah, just constantly giving you advice, like what? Yeah. What? What did you decide to do, and 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 how did you decide it? Well, so first off, I don't know if I'm right. It could be fear or ego telling me that I know better. Right? Maybe you're totally right, and I would be much happier if no, I followed No, I don't know. I, I can't necessarily say I was happier going that route. Like, maybe I was unhappier sort of uh, kind of putting away my initial desires and saying, okay, no, I need money first. Because I didn't. it's not like I held on to that money yeah. at that time, That's at least. So, uh, so what I realized when I was, I was building my marketing company, and I still have a company now. It became something different. But when I was building this company, and you gave me a lot of advice on how to scale that company and ultimately sell it. But a big part of that advice is you have to spend a lot of time and energy pursuing and signing clients yes. who you do boring, crappy work for. Yes, right? that, like those you, are the two awful legs of that, of that business. Yeah, and obviously you, you have to do good work or no one will ever hire you, but it's like you have to, hire, you have to get hired by a Fortune 500 company who gives you like you know, a mid-five-figure-a-month retainer that they immediately forget about and then you just keep that money, and your job is just to manage that relationship. Well, I hate doing that. That One, that makes me feel bad as a human being, like because I'm taking money for something and I'm not doing anything, even though I understand that the money is relative and it's not that important to them. But And, and I find it soul-sucking to do crappy work. And so I... I remember thinking at some point, like maybe part of the way through building that company, which you'd given me great advice and you'd even invested in. Um, it was like, I was like, I'm working on all, I'm doing twice as much work for companies that I don't like to make the exact same amount of money personally. Like I'm drawing the same salary that I was when I had five clients. Now I have 20 clients, but I've had to hire all these other people to do these other things. And I remember thinking, like, this is not – the red queen effect is, like, where you're running faster and faster to stay in the same place. That's what I felt like I was doing. Maybe I wasn't totally under I, – I wasn't able to calculate the, the way that I was moving towards being able to exit this thing eventually. But then I, I just thought, what if I, what if I scaled back the expenses a huge amount? I only worked on projects that I actually liked. Maybe I participate in the upside on those projects or I even create I, – I focus my energy on making my own things instead of marketing them for other people. Could I not still make a really good living and then really never have to do anything I don't want to do? Well, and it's great because then you move to, from New York City, which is expensive, to Austin yes. where you have like a little farm now. Yeah. And you kind of moved away from people so you could focus more on your own 
projects. You've written three books since then. You've worked on tons of other creative projects since then. I'm assuming you're happier than when you were like flying all over trying to yeah. kiss ass the clients. And to to your credit, I just want to say I did invest. And you, I remember you and you and Tucker were working together. To your guys' credit. This is the only time ever someone just called me up and said, hey, can we wire you back the money? <laughs> so that had never happened to me before. Well, it's funny. Tucker and I very much disagreed about, like, Tucker wanted to build a company that scaled, and I didn't. Like, that that was the, the argument between us with this company we had. But the one thing we were in complete agreements, agreement about was that we should make you our main investor completely whole and so that there was so, some common ground there that was very nice but i was and, and to be fair like then you know tucker's doing great with book in a box you're doing your thing you guys live 20 minutes from each other so it like he, worked he and out. i talked about we we had we had lunch or dinner uh, a while ago and we were we were joking about how it's totally worked out that like he's doing something totally different but is exactly what he wants to do and i'm doing something totally different and it's exactly what i want to do isn't that much better than us attempting to force each other to do some middle thing that neither of us wants to do. But that's that's very wise, though. Like, I ended up doing, around the age you are now, something I, giving up something I wanted to do, do something I totally did not want to do just for money, and I I regret it. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that's been, like, I I think I figured out that I didn't want to do this, um, very, very, very early. Like, I was very lucky to discover it early. Most of the time, you wake up, like, 10 years down a road, and you're like, I am so deeply unhappy. I want to kill myself. I don't want to do this. So I'm very grateful that I figured it out early. But I think one of my advantages in figuring stuff like this out early and being able to make changes to decide to leave American Apparel and become a writer, like, that was a crazy thing to do in retrospect. But um, I've been with my wife now since I was 19 years old. So like before, like while I was in college, before any of this crazy stuff happened to me, we were together. So I had this baseline of a person who understands me and has understood all the different people that I've been. And so it was like, I was doing this, trying to scale this company and it was like, I was making more money, but I was way less happier and my relationship was way worse. And so you, in those situations, I think you realize it's like, okay, like, if I win at this company, but I lose at this other thing, basically, all, what, have, what have I gained? And don't people spend all their money trying to get this other thing, like, trying to get the personal happiness? Like, don't people buy boats and nice cars so they can feel good in their private life? Like, what if I just didn't have some of those things, but I didn't ruin this relationship, and I didn't destroy the life that I'd built? So that was a big wake-up call for me. It was, it's like when I'm, when my personal life is suffering, it's usually because I've overcommitted to some work thing that I can't do, or I'm, I'm, I've put a, an importance or an arbitrary significance on some work thing that doesn't matter. So it's like basically my ego, when my ego flares up. My life suffers, and that's how I. Can, that's the canary in the coal mine. It's almost. It's almost like you can use the the identifying where your ego is to identify the. Tw- you know, in the eighty twenty rule, you have to. The hard part, real. Everyone's like, oh, I'm gonna do twenty percent of the work for eighty percent of the results. The hard part is finding out the twenty percent that's actually working for you. So, 
You could use the ego almost as like this flashlight to identify the 20% that might be working for you, the one where you feel the most involved with your craft or your relationships or whatever. Well, I think the hard part with 80-20 is like, so let's say 20% of your clients make 80% of your money um, or whatever it is. The idea that you're going to turn down 80% of your clients, that you're going to say no to that extra 20%, which the more successful you get, the larger that denomination is, right? The I, I think one of the hardest, and probably because of ego, one of the hardest things for humans to do, obviously in, in a high-class setting, is to say no to money. Like when someone's like, I will pay you X to do this, for you to go like, nah, I don't really want to. Because it also gratifies the ego, like someone chose you. Totally. You know, and is willing to, and it values you so much, they're willing to pay. It like makes your ego feel good. And that approval is very important to me, more than money, right? And so I, and like, I was talking to Tim Ferriss. Um, he he asked me when when I was building my company, and this was very critical to the decision I made. He he was like, "Let me ask you a question," um, because he'd asked me sort of how much money I was making and how it's going. He was like, "Let me ask you a question. What do you do with this money?" And I, no one's ever asked me that question before since. And I was like. It just goes in a bank account. Like I don't like really like I when I lived here, I lived in a two thousand dollar a month apartment, which is cheap for New York standards, and I could have afforded a much better one or you know, like I I drive like a, a twenty thousand dollar car when I could afford a much nicer car, right? Um and so it was like it goes in a bank account is what my answer was. And so it was like, why am I doing all these things I don't like so I can have just more money on a spreadsheet somewhere? If I have most of what I want or need and things are going at a reasonable trajectory already that like the things I don't have, I would be able to get eventually. Do you know what I mean? And that that was a big wake up call. It was like, but, but can you argue you were you were like saving money was buying freedom to some extent? But uh, I ha- but I I think that's what we tell ourselves. But if you're doing things you don't want to do, can you really argue that freedom is important to you? I guess it's in some ways ego goes hand in hand with insecurity. So I was, for me, I was always so uh, unsure of my ability to make money, except when people were directly throwing it at me that I would just say yes to everything because I was afraid if I don't, I'll die. I've had to work on that on therapy because I'm the same way. It's like someone will say like, you know, if my, if my speaking fee is X, someone will offer me like 10% of X and I'll be like, oh, I should do that, you know? And because I can't, I I want that approval and I want as much as I can get because I'm so scared it will dry up at some point that I end up undervaluing myself, overexerting myself and caught like- And burning out. Yeah, and so that like, again, this is where the personal life thing comes in. It's like, you know, I'm- I can't go, like, my wife's like, you can't go around and act like you're stressed out and put upon and overburdened for things that nobody, like, she's like, I didn't ask you to fly to London for 12 hours for $1,000. Like, she's like, you can't act like you're saving the world. It's your vanity and ego that's made it impossible for you to say, like, that's not worth it. So how do you... Again, how do you overcome that? It is a, a big problem. Like, how did you overcome that in therapy, for instance? Um, and then, by the way, we 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 have, we've only begun to talk about the book. We'll so. talk. We'll talk all night, man. Uh, I 
one of the things my therapist said to me, because she would, she was like, why do you think that? Or she would say like, why? Or is, and, and I would say, well, I think, or like what I believe is, or, you know, I would answer like that. And she would, she said, she stopped me and she was like, thoughts are not facts. Like thoughts are just thoughts. And I realized that I've created this very rigid definition of the universe, like rules that I then insisted on following all the time. And so um, that was a question. It's like one of the things what, what I say with my wife is I'll, I'll go like, should I do this? Like someone will ask me something and I'll go, should I do this? And she'd be like, if you have to ask, the answer is no. Um, that's really good advice. You know, and that's, I think you talk about that in The Power of No. It's like, that that idea of like hell yes or hell no, like yeah. if you if you which by the way I stole from Derek Sivers. I'm yes. freely admitting, but yeah, and Mark Manson talks about it too. If it's not, if it's it not a hell yeah, then it's a no. Yeah, and that's I I would say I almost always say like well maybe instead like I you know I I still like equivocate and I kind of rationalize. I, yeah, I still do it. I'm not good at it, but I've gotten better and I've started saying no to things, and I don't feel as guilty when I do say no because. I'm trying to, um, there's a, a Gertrude quote where he says, like, uh, true failing is to value yourself at more than you are or less than your true worth. Mm. And, but, but again, that's an easy thing to say. Yes. How do you actually do it? Or how do you move towards it? Let's see, no, obviously you can't change overnight. So how do you move in the direction towards that window that he's describing? Well, one of the things my therapist worked on me, she was like, you, you actually have to try, like, say no or do you know, do nothing and see what happens. Like, like, I think what I get in these patterns of is I think like, okay, if I say no to this, then nothing else will come along and I'll regret it forever and I'll die in poverty. You know, the, the crazy thing that your anxiety takes it to. But the problem is because you have that anxiety, you never actually test what that fear is. So it's like, because uh, I never want to miss anything, I'm never late. So I stress the, myself out by being obsessively early, let's say. But I never have gone like, well, what would happen if I was late? You know, or I never say, I never say like, what would happen if I said no to this thing? And so I, you have to take on faith. Like, okay, I'm going to say no to this. Like, there was a, a, a book project I worked on. I was going to work on. I was all signed up for it. It was for a book I, uh, it was for a book I wanted to work on, but it was with a person that I didn't want to work with. Um, like someone else was involved in the project. And it was going to pay, um, um, $10,000, $15,000. So good money, right? And um, I I said, like, I'm. remember, you're not going to do these things that make you unhappy anymore. You don't need the money. Like, say no to this thing. And so I said no, and I had to, I'd already said yes, even though I'd mm-hmm. been, so I had to, I had to, do the double, I had to say, like, I know I said yes, but I'm actually going back on my word. I'm really sorry. I don't remember if I had to return the money, but I, I said no. And and so I felt bad about it, and I felt like, you know, it was stupid, and that I was being, you know, egotistical or whatever. And then, like, two weeks later, Tony Robbins called me, totally out of the blue. I don't even, I didn't even know how he got my phone number, and so I didn't answer, and I got a voicemail. I was like, hi, oh, this is Tony Robbins. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And he... Uh, another client of mine had recommended me to him and he wanted me to work on his book. And he paid me as it was a bigger project. I made twice as much from that project as I would have from the one that I passed. And it was like, that's why you have to test these fears that you have and you have to be willing Mm -hmm. to put your immediate ego aside to see 
if it really does stand up. And ch- a lot of times it doesn't. See, that's a great story. I would have loved to have read that story in this book, actually. Yeah, I'm not comfortable. It makes me very uncomfortable to talk about myself in in my in my book writing. Well, let's talk about this stuff. You, okay. you, because you do have, by the way, amazing stories in your book writing, or in this book. Uh, one we talked about, actually, because we ran into each other at a conference a, yeah. a week ago. We talked about Howard Hughes, who... I'm and we like, talked about Howard Hughes the last time I was on the podcast because yeah. I was reading the book then. Yeah, you were. Uh, that's what I figured. For some reason, I kind of assumed you were doing research for like Robert Greene or something yeah. like that. Now I realize you were doing research for this book. But um, I've been reading like every bio of Howard Hughes since I was a little kid. Yeah. So I was very interested in the story because I, I've even written articles about Howard Hughes for the Financial Times. I put together like Howard Hughes index of all the companies out there that he's his name is still somehow involved with. Sure. And. I never realized how you were explaining to me how little he's actually accomplished. Yes. And it was all kind of driven by ego. And I mean, I knew everything came from an inheritance, but then I thought, I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought he himself invent, had some technical expertise where he invented the latest drill bit that Hughes Tool Company did to make their massive profits. No, his father was the, was the driving force behind the drill company, and, and Howard Hughes was a— and a spoiled rich boy. Um, his father had already had this. And there's actually some argument about whether his father invented anything or if he had just purchased the rights to the thing that made him all this. No question, both are very astute businessmen um, in a lot of ways. His father built a company worth millions of dollars in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, but Howard Hughes inherited... Um, like two-thirds of or, or three-quarters of the Hughes uh, Tool Company. And then in, in what is an incredibly bold and, and, and truly brave move, he essentially leverages all of it as like a 19, 18-year-old to buy out his family to own this uh, company completely private. That then goes, It would be like if, if Elon Musk owned Tesla as a private company and it was worth tens of billions of dollars. But, but let me ask you a question. Was it stupid that he did that? Because essentially the gamble was uh, all of America would be driving cars and would need oil drilling, and his th- their, that drill bit is what every oil company used to, to drill for oil. Yeah. So did he make this gamble that he couldn't really have predicted what was going to happen over the next 50 years? Yeah, that's the that's hard thing when you look at stories from history. You, you've got to think about it from their perspective. Like, did they have the—they did not have the information that it would be such a, a prescient— you know, a uh, brilliant move. But I do think, you know, the idea of like, hey, I'm going to own this thing completely so it's mine and mine alone. I'm not going to have meddling relatives. This is going to be a venture that I'm going to run the way that I want to run it. I think there's a lot to admire there. But as you often find, a lot of, like, that's a a brilliant, crazy move Sometimes it's because it's brilliant. Sometimes it's because it's crazy, you know? And I think there was probably the seeds of both brilliance and craziness in that decision. For an 18-year-old not to listen to his parents or, you know, to his relatives and the lawyers and everyone who knew better, it's, it's impressive but also foreshadowed a lot of, like, here's what happens. So he makes that decision and it's contrary to all conventional wisdom and it worked out which you could argue is the worst thing that could have possibly happened to him because he then makes almost every decision he ever makes from that point forward is contrary to conventional wisdom 
you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to fly the plane this way. Don't do that. It will crash. And then it crashes, right? So it's the same sort of hard-headedness makes him billions of dollars, but also kills him. Right. So, so okay. So then the other question is, I mean, he then built movie studios. He made movies. He uh, bought TWA. He bought all this real estate. I'll, I, I agree. A lot of those things, like the movies, kept you know flushing money down the toilet. He had to go back to the Tulco company to to um, fix himself. The defense yeah. contracts didn't. He made money on the defense contracts, I think, but it didn't. But work he out. didn't run the defense company, right? And his most, he made like five hundred and fifty million dollars from TWA, but that was only by. That was only when he was forced by a lawsuit. Is either a sh- I think it was a shareholder lawsuit or it might have been a government lawsuit. It was only when he was forced by a lawsuit to sell his shares that he realized that profit, which was his most his biggest business coup. So so then the the real estate too in Las Vegas that was huge for him, and he yeah. b- bet on on real estate. But it's like he bet on real estate. Like he bought one of the casinos because he they were trying to get him to leave the penthouse suite because they had someone who wanted to rent it. And he was so insane that he didn't want to leave the suite. So it's like it wasn't as if he scoped out the real estate and and looked at the the demographic tr- trends and and all this stuff. It was it was that he he uh, he was paranoid and didn't want to leave his hotel room. And he was an agoraphobe. You know that is why he made. That's really funny. That's why he made that money. So. You know, you look at a lot of these decisions that were brilliant in retrospect, but they were also not driven by rational thought. They were driven by emotional reactions and petulance and paranoia and stuff like that. So, so okay, so that's Howard Hughes, and clearly yeah. it was driven by uh, e- a lot of ego, but also he was kind of mentally ill, So and yeah. which increased with the plane crashes and, the, and so on. The things are comorbid with each other, right? Like, not only, not only does... does not taking care of yourself and and sort of not like for instance what is 12 there's no medical process involved in like a 12 step group it's really just like you have to have relationships and you have to take care of your life and you have to be a good person these are things that help you manage even serious mental illnesses and you know chemical dependencies right so it was i think you could argue the fact that he lived this chaotic egotistical selfish life that exacerbated a lot of his bipolar um likely bipolar problems or his mania or his his uh, phobias it was that he set up a life in which he was accountable to no one or no mm-hmm. thing and had no relationships that and and surrounded himself with only sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear that that put him in a place where he had to die this terrible, sad death. Um, I think what I what I take from Howard Hughes is that it's easy to look at these maverick businessmen and say, like, oh, that's so like I liked when he socked it to that person or when he did that awesome thing, or isn't it hilarious how he did this? And then when you actually look at their lives, they're really sad and pathetic. Like there's there was this line where he's on his deathbed and and one of his aides is like trying to reassure him. And he's like, But look, think about the, you know, the wonderful life you've had. And he was like, if you could trade places with me in one week, you would be begging to go back to your what, life. What do you think he saw in his life that made him say that? Probably saw the fact that he was naked. He hadn't trimmed his toenails in years. He hadn't shaved. He was living in a hospital bed, and he had orderlies inject him with morphine every you know 20 minutes. And that he was living in the Caribbean because he refused— he re- 
he gave up his residency in the United States and he, he moved all over the country, abandoning his wives and other things because he just, he couldn't, he refused to basically pay income tax. It was, it was like, even though he had millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, the idea that he would have to give some of that money to the government was so aggravating to him that he, in many ways, ruined his life and hastened his own death because he was living in like Puerto Rico or the Bahamas, you know, smuggling drugs in with, you know, non-certified doctors um, because he couldn't do that. Or even his foundation, the Howard Hughes Foundation, which has done like a lot of amazing medical research, he he only did that. It was this astute manipulation to avoid income tax. And it's like, you see that with really successful people. It's like, dude, what do you care? Just like, your taxes pay for things. Like, stop Stop trying to hold on to everything as though you own it and it's yours forever. And if you don't have it, you're going to die. Well, and this is related not just to money, but obviously also related to like fame and the other things we try to hold on to. Like, oh, people are going to remember me. Or uh, or like you have the example where Alexander the Great, uh, you know, is goes to this philosopher. I, how Diogenes. Yeah. And he says, what can I, I'm Alexander the Great. What, what do you need done? And Diogenes just says, just can you... You're in. You're blocking the sun. Yeah, and, you're in my way. Please move. And all that. And then ultimately, Alexander the Great what dies at the age of 35 or 32, some young age. Yeah. And it, what did it all mean to him having these empires? Yeah, I, I, I like this idea of like, what does it matter to Alexander that Alexandria is a city that still exists and it has his name? Like he's dead. Right. He doesn't. That doesn't. He doesn't feel anything. He's dead. And so. That was a, that's a sobering thought that it's like when I'm in the middle of a book project and I, I'm angry at the world and I'm struggling with this thing and I, I'm, I hate this person for interrupting me and I'm mad, you know, about this and, and then my publisher says that, so I'm upset about this and then this other thing's not going right. It's like, dude, relax. Like, you're writing a book. Like, you're, you get to do what you love to do and... If you're not enjoying it, when do you think the payoff for this thing is? I think, though, a lot of people do feel they have to pay, you know, quote-unquote, pay their dues, and then the enjoyment happens after the payment. Yeah, Tim talks about that. It's like this deferred life plan, but you could die at any moment. Yeah. And so, obviously, I'm not saying you should not plan for the future at all. I very much plan for the future. But if you're not enjoying the present moment— Aren't you living in a world where you've egotistically told yourself that the future you are predicting for yourself is guaranteed? And so, so you you talk in the book a little bit about the distinction between passion and purpose. And your yeah. your point was, passion is bad because it could kind of um, distort how you view something or or think you have more control than than you have over what the outcome is. Whereas purpose, or I've actually referred to this as more themes versus goals, but. Yeah. Uh, purpose being like a theme, you could move steadily to- along some theme or some purpose and and achieve something regardless of if it's not what your intended outcome was. Yeah, I think, you know, passion is, e- a lot of people are passionate, right? A lot of people are excited. Energy is a pretty, every human being has the capability for energy, right? But the idea of like purpose and discipline and order and direction, those are, that's what separates, you know, the, the, the boys from the men, so to speak, right? Like it's this idea of, it's not just, hey, I want this and I'm going to do anything it takes to get it. That can be a recipe for disaster. I th- I think you're far better to have, I'll give you an example. Like people go like, I want to have a book. 
And then I'm like, what do you want to have? They, they're like, I want to have a book. I want it to be a New York Times bestseller. I'm going to throw $50,000 marketing budget at it. And I'm going to blah, blah, like, what can, can you help me? And I'll be like, so what's your, um, what's your book going to be about? And they're like, I don't know. What should it be about? And so I, to me, that's, that's, they're very passionate about having the book. But they have not asked themselves, why am I doing this? What is it for? What am I trying to accomplish? You know, what am I even doing? So, you know, there's this Eleanor Roosevelt quote in the book where he says, like, you know, you're very passionate about this legislation. And she's like, I don't think that word, uh, you know, um, applies to me. It's not that she didn't care about it. She just saw passionate as being like she was this crazy zealot. No, she's like, I know. When you look at some of history's biggest mistakes, it's like, you know, George Bush is passionate about the Iraq war. They're passionate about the Segway. They think everyone's going to be driving around on these silly scooters. You know, they're passionate about getting to the top of Everest, even though weather is too, you know, the weather's, uh, the weather advisory says they shouldn't. That's where you do terrible things. But, but also, like thinking about purpose, and I'm sure you get a lot of these emails, how does somebody find what their purpose is, let alone what they could be passionate about? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very tough question. Uh, I think Robert Greene talks about this in Mastery really well. It's like it's finding the overlap between what you're good at, what you would do for free, what you can lose yourself in, you know, for hours and hours, and where there's a real marketable, but where there's a real market interest in what you're doing. So, what if you have no purpose? <laughs> Like a lot of people are, are at 50 years old after 30 years working in a cubicle and, get, and doing everything people have told them to do, and there's nothing wrong with that. They kind of stop and say, well, how do, I, how do I build even the skill to find out what my purpose is? I haven't done that for 30 years. You know what? I'm going to practice something on you. So I had lunch. Um, Neil Strauss took me to lunch, and, and Rick Rubin was there. And I was asking Rick Rubin all these questions. And a bunch of times he'd be like, I don't know. Like, and I, I was like so amazed by that because he probably did know or he could have, but he was like, he didn't think he had a good answer. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer. Like I've, I haven't been, you know, 50 years old and have, having done a thing for 30 years and then realized it was all for not. So I don't, to, I don't really know what that is. It, to me, I've always liked writing. It wasn't, I, I guess maybe what I can answer is how I came to what I do, which is. I I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I just knew that I really looked, I really enjoyed the work of a collection of writers and I was finding myself spending lots of time in books. Like I was reading all the time and I was reading about the people that made those books and then I met one of them. I met Tucker. I had sent him an email and we sort of, I wrote an article about him for a college newspaper and we kind of became, uh, we, we chatted a few times and so, and then I was like, I'd like to work for you. It was like, I saw someone doing something that he liked and I liked what he was making. And then I, I reached out. I didn't, it wasn't like I was pursuing my path to become a writer. It was like, I just wanted to be closer to this thing that was appealing to me. And then over time, the fact that I could do this became more obvious. And then I had a, a much more realistic trajectory to do it. So, you know, you wrote that piece about finding your scene and you're really talking about finding the people who are doing what you're doing and, you know, having sort of colleagues and allies and stuff. Maybe it's like you have to find just the scene that you're attracted to first, even if you're not like a doer in that scene and you just have to be around it. And then 
what you could contribute to that scene, I think becomes, will eventually become visible. And you know, it's interesting because now with the internet, you can obviously find that scene by moving to where the people are. That, yes. Like New York City has lots of scenes, so it's a, a great place to, to live, to kind of experiment with different scenes. But also with the internet, you could find plenty of kind of groups on Facebook or message boards or whatever where your scene exists, and that's how you can try out things as well from, from your own home. Yeah, and it's like if there's a scene of people who are getting together and talking or enjoying something— is there not probably some business tangentially or career or occupation tangentially a- around that thing? Probably. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I um, had this podcast with Tony Hawk where you, you were actually in the audience. And one of the things that's always interesting to me about him is that he basically took something skateboarding yeah. and made a huge amount, built a business empire around that when it kind of almost demonstrates you could take almost any purpose and build what you want around it because because who would have thought skateboarding you would have been able to do that with right it wasn't like and actually this is true for all things for a couple generations ago the idea of being a professional football player was not a thing there were just people who really liked football and then someone created a league and then they hired the people who were best at football isn't that not the ethos behind choosing yourself right it's like you're you don't. It's not you're choosing this as a lucrative business. You're choosing it because you love it, and then the business, I th- the business component reveals itself over time. Hopefully, you know. And then you you talk about um, this martial artist Frank Shamrock. Yeah, uh, he's a martial artist trainer. He's a fighter. And once you find your purpose or the thing that you know you're good at, there's always the discussion. Then you know, and this is related a lot to Malcolm Gladwell's research, Anders Ericsson's research on on peak performance. Uh, how do you get better at what your purpose is? And doing it in a way where where it's not about the ego, but it's about kind of this self-driven motivation and work. So you, you mentioned Frank Shamrock had this very simple formula, you know, pl- uh, plus minus equal. Yeah. Uh, maybe describe that a little bit. Yeah, so I found that formula. There's a great book called The Fighter's Mind by Sam Sheridan. And even if you don't um, practice MMA, which I, I haven't done for a long time, um, even if you're not interested in it, it's just a, such a fascinating insight into the minds of people who do this crazy thing professionally, which is fight and beat the crap out of each other. Um, and there was an interview with Frank Shamrock. I ended up reading his memoir as well. But he was saying it's that you've got to find someone who's better than you because they show you all the things you don't know. You have to find someone who's as good as you so you're you know, being challenged at your level and you know, getting to getting to, that's how you sort of generate strength. And, and, and that's how you get feedback, really. Yes. Like you, you, because those are the people who are going to give you, who, who are going to, the teacher is going to give you the most feedback, but you have to be challenged in some way so you can see what the feedback is. Exactly. And then you have to have someone who's, who's less than you, who's not at the same level as you, that you are in turn teaching. And so uh, you're, you're cultivating both humility because you're so much, um, so much. You're, this person is so superior to you. You're cultivating confidence because you're 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 challenging and hopefully besting this this person who's your equal. And then you're also 
paying it forward and articulating what you're learning to this other person. Like one of the best ways to learn something is to try to teach it to someone, trying to teach what you think you know to someone else. And then you're like, oh, wait, I don't understand this. So I have to go back to the material. And so he, that, that's the formula that he runs his, his MMA gym and that he puts all his fighters through. And I think it's really interesting. And it's, you have to think about who those people are in your life. That's almost like the way to seed the scene that you're going to build. Make sure, sure you're filling out the plus minus equal. Totally. Uh, and, you know, it's also a way, again, to sublimate the the ego because very important is to find the plus, the people who are consistently better than you and not, you know, you, and, and basically listen to them. Yeah, frankly, if you are doing the plus minus equal, you are way too busy to have an ego. You know, like because the the master's going to kick the crap out of you if he catches you with it. You're challenged and struggling enough at your level and you realize that this person like is a human being and that you're teaching them and you like them, you're not better than like you know what I mean? Well, it, it, to some extent, it seems you say ego is the enemy. It seems like it's the enemy of a lot of things, but one thing it's probably the enemy of almost the most is curiosity. Sure. If you take out the plus, for instance, oh, no one's better than me, or because in some in, in in fighting it's clear who's better than you, but in some areas of life it's a little unclear. So when you're working at a company and you think you have a, a grand passion for it, you might not know who's better or who's worse. But if you stop asking questions, then you'll definitely never know who's who's better because you won't have anybody answering them. Well, I think what you see in fighting is that the stakes of thinking that you're better than everyone else, wrongly thinking that, are so high that people don't indulge in it, right? It's like if you overestimate your abilities, like even 1%, and you don't work on some aspect of your game, someone's going to come knock you out or, you know, right. so kill you even if you're not careful, right? right. And it's, it's in a business context since we're not aware, it's not as immediately obvious or visceral the damage we're doing to ourselves when we think we know. There's an Epictetus quote I have in the book where he's, that one cannot learn that which they think they already know. And if you think you're the greatest or you think you're better or you think you know everything, you're not going to be able to improve. But then how do you explain a guy like Muhammad Ali who from at least superficially just seemed crazy with ego? Sure. Um, I quote him in the book. He's like, when you're as it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Well, it's like, yeah, so you have to work really, really hard at it would, I, would be, I think, the response. But, you know, one of the sad things you see in sports is that these guys, the, even if their ego is adaptive in the sense that it makes them fearless and bold and amazing at what they do, it eventually comes at the cost of, say, not knowing when to retire mm. or fighting for too long. Or um, there was certainly... Um, losses that, like, one of the one of the arguments I'm most tired about with egos, they'll go like, this person has a huge ego and they're successful. Doesn't that make it okay? And what you don't think about is what are the fights that Muhammad Ali lost because he was he he had a he he didn't train enough or he took his opponent um, he he underestimated his opponent or you know what are the failings that someone like Kanye West has had because he's convinced that he's a creative genius who can do no wrong. Or Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. The fact that he came back, start, that he started Pixar, that he worked on himself, that he came back and, re, and, and reinvigorated Apple and made it the world's most valuable company, that was not a given. What if he'd just been fired and became a nobody, right? Like that could have been the end of the Steve Jobs story. The, the board of directors of Apple did not have to let him come back. 
right? And so we never think about that. We don't think about all the people that had tons of potential, but huge egos that we've never heard of. Well, it's funny because I think what happened with Steve Jobs, and particularly I'm aware of this after reading your book and, and thinking about it, seems like he got really good. He, he probably still always had the ego up until the end, but he was really good at, like you say, uh, adapting it. And maybe the yeah. ego in some ways, like his own sense of control over his own health might have eventually uh, led to a quicker demise for him. But his ability to kind of take his ego down a notch in a business setting and create teams yes. became incredibly valuable. Like think about these guys on his team, particularly later on. They were all you know, 100 millionaires like Johnny yeah. Ive and all these guys, but they still kept being Steve Jobs' employee. Yes. And that became is why Apple became a $500 billion company. Like, why didn't Tim Armstrong or Johnny Ive ever quit when they, or, or Ed Catman when they had a, their first $100 million? Totally. It's because they just loved working for Steve Jobs. Well, and, and Pat Riley, I talk about this in the book, he calls it the disease of me. You, you have the innocent climb. He says that's where a team is just getting started and we're like on this journey to a championship, let's say, together. Then it's when you start to become successful that the ego starts to pull at, like, it's like, oh, we won because of me. You're not pulling your weight. Or we won because we're just better than everyone else. Or we, now that we won, I better get paid. You know, it's those sort of attitudes but how do you that pull that, that apart. A, a little bit, though, because to some extent, you do have to get paid a little more if you're the main guy. And to some extent, you don't want someone on the team who's not pulling their weight. So how do you balance that? Well, the job of the coach and the leader is to is to do their best to recognize and reward everyone for their 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 contributions to the enterprise, but never let any individual matter more than the team. Like, I would imagine, I don't know this, and I and so please don't interpret this as any inside knowledge. I imagine Bill Belichick, if Tom Brady started like not playing well, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick would trade. Tom Brady in two seconds. Like he's he's allowed himself to be as objective as possible about his profession, and ultimately his loyalty is to the team itself. So, what if Tom Brady? Let's let's take a different um, look. What if Tom Brady kept the skill level high, but suddenly he was really focused on having tens of millions of Instagram followers? Yeah, and even because of the fame, he knew and the skill, he demanded you know a hundred million dollar package, and you know maybe. Uh, that would be uncomfortable. Like, how do you kind of um, well, what his, that? His performance would suffer, obviously, and I think it's impressive for someone like Tom Brady that that's never actually happened, right? Um, but let his his performance would start to suffer, and the the job of the coach would be to obviously point these things out and to to instill in the team the um, the the loyalty and the mechanism by which the individual is never allowed to. In 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 gratifying their own ego, cost the team anything. So Belichick Belichick's thing is always like, do your job. I don't care about anything else. You got to do your job. And if you're not doing your job because you're doing all these other things, then you're letting the team down. Well, and you, you sum this summarize this well, particularly in an athletic setting, but I think it applies to other settings. With a quote from from one quote, coach that you quote, uh, play for the name on the front of the jersey, and they'll remember the name on the back. Yes. So if you really want to best serve your own purposes, again, play for the team. Sure. It's on the names on the front of the jersey, and your name's on the back. That will People will always remember it. Yeah. And, and I think that's important. Even in an employee setting, like if you're working for a boss and you do something great, if you give the boss all the credit, no one's going to forget what you did. It's just your boss is going to be 
much easier to work with and and probably reward you in the long run and so on. Well, I'll give you an example of this. For most of my time in American Apparel, I did not have the official title of director of marketing. It was not a company which titles mattered a great deal. I reported directly to Dove anyway. And so I did like, and nobody in the out, for most of the people in the outside world, it certainly didn't say this on my LinkedIn profile. They did not know that I was the director of marketing at American Apparel. And I, I'll even say I, I probably wasn't paid commensurate with most other people in a similar position at a publicly traded company. But I knew that if I did a really good job and if the company did really well, over time, not, what I was getting paid or what my, what, how, you know, so-and-so and whatever department, what they thought of me would be irrelevant compared to the fact that I am credited and partly responsible publicly for work that is known and people enjoy. And I also knew that when it became, as it, over time it became clear to me that what I really wanted to do was be a writer who talked about interesting things, that would be a calling card that would be beneficial for my sort of resume and, and bio. And so I was able to, like, I don't care about that. Like, I don't care about making 1% more. Or I don't care about this person not treating me right. All I care about is doing good work and putting forth things that over the long term people are going to remember and are going to matter. So, you know, a lot of this, a lot. so your book is divided up into aspirations, uh, successes, failures. And I think most of the time, actually, we live between aspirations and failures. Success is sort of brief. Very ephemeral, yes. Yeah, because success happens, and then you think, okay, well, that happened, and now I got to do the next thing. You write a book, and now you're probably already thinking what what's yeah. the next book should be. So you, you have this great example, which I just love. It's maybe my best favorite example in the book, but it's Malcolm X going to jail. Yeah. And that's obviously – the guy – failed at life. He was a criminal. He was a real criminal. Yeah. There, there's no excusing it. Like, he yeah. was a criminal. He went to jail. And I don't even want to say necessarily he was a success later. Like, the history could debate yeah. that. But uh, but he clearly built a, a powerful organization later, which, which still exists. And um, he says, in those moments of failure, uh, you could either make it a lifetime or dead time. No, so actually, he's just an example of a lifetime or dead time. Oh, who, who actually said it? Robert Greene. So, so this there you go. As, so I had decided that I was going to leave American Apparel to write a book, but I wasn't going to leave until like June. And this was, this was like a year before, this maybe less than a year, but close to a year before that. I knew this was what I wanted to do, um, but I knew I wasn't ready. And I, I went out to lunch with Robert and I told him that, hey, I want to write a book and this is what I want to do it about. And uh, like, I need to save up money and, and you know, this is... And, and I was like, what advice do you have for me? And he was like, this year where you're basically sitting here waiting for you to embark on this thing, he was like, this can be a live time or dead time. You can either be, you know, phoning in at work, um, just, you know, earning money and, and, you know, idly sort of preparing, or this can be an active phase for you where you're like, you're basically getting your research subsidized, you're meeting people, you're... You're, he was like, is this going to be a live time for you or dead time for you? And how do you kind of flip the switch so you know that you're, what's what's kind of the essence of what you have to do to make something a live time as opposed to dead time? Well, it's like, okay, you're sitting in your car in traffic and you're like, when is this traffic going to be over? When is this traffic going to be over? Or you're like, who can I call to talk about 
this thing that we're working on? Or what's an article I can think through in my head? Or, you know, can I listen to a podcast or turn on an audiobook? It's It can be big things like, you know, Malcolm X deciding, like, I'm going to learn to read in prison and I'm going to become, I'm going to read everything. He said he spent every moment reading in his bunk or in the library. Oh, that, that's right. Someone asked him, what, who, where's your, what's your alma mater? Like, what school yeah. are you? And he said books. Yes. He literally copied the dictionary down by hand. He, he checked out a dictionary from the library and a pencil from the store, and he, and he transferred the, the, the dictionary word by word. And that's how he was such an articulate, smart person. But So it can be a big, life-transforming moment like that, or it can say— hey, I was supposed to meet someone at 1 o'clock and they just texted me to say they're going to be 30 minutes late. I could go for a walk and, you know, get some exercise in and clear my head. I could meditate. I could I could work. Or I could sit on my phone and play Angry Birds. Like, so, so all these things are kind of ways to... Um, it's almost like keeping the mind busy so ego doesn't take place. Like, you could be mad and say, ugh, I'm... Why, how dare this guy yeah. be 30 minutes late? Or you can use this to actually better, this time to better your life. Yeah, you could call your friend and complain about how your other friend was rude, or you could call your friend and have a deep, provoking conversation about what you want to do with your life. So, so you know, again, it's interesting. You have to sort of, like, practice getting into this mindset. It's totally a mindset yeah. uh, game. And, then, you know, I want to, you know, all of these guys, everybody you mention. There's one aspect that I wonder if it's part of what you're saying or an additional thing. So you talk about, in our lives, divided into three parts, aspirations, success, and failures. But it seems like ego comes out the most when there's stress. So even in your American Apparel example story earlier, the CFO was under stress, so ego came out and he said something that he shouldn't have said. Yeah. So if his if the stress wasn't there, his ego might not have come out. Sure. So it seems like stress also. Maybe you can say that's part of failure. I don't know. Um, no, you know, it's, do you, do you view it as something separate or or something that because that spikes more as opposed to being chronic. So there's a chapter that's not in the book. It didn't really work. So it's like a bonus chapter. I'm calling it then. Yes. Uh, and it was basically like take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like, and there, there's a um, a letter from Lord Chesterfield to his son, and that's what was the basis of the the section. But he's basically saying is like um, a guy, um, a guy who might otherwise be like a hero or a, a you know a genius, if he doesn't get like a good night's sleep and a good breakfast, could be a coward and an idiot or something. That's like the line. And so I love. It's like if you don't. It's interesting because there's also a study in psychology called ego depletion. And basically the idea is like if there was like a plate of it, – it's a controversial study. But if there's a plate of cookies here and and you and I had to – were forced to resist from eating them, we would be worse at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Because like our ego is being sucked towards resisting this thing that we want. But um, It's so funny. I wonder if that's related to the fact that uh, people are more likely – to tell the truth when there's a lot of food in front of them, because I wonder if they, if then they they lose the willpower to deceive, for instance, because they're trying to decide what. So there's some depletion if they decide what to eat or what to uh, or or not to eat and so on. I would just say like the times when I've gotten most angry about things, it was because I was tired or I hadn't eaten right, mm-hmm. and so it's like that might be the difference between rightfully getting upset about something and then going on. Uh, a tire, an abusive tirade, where you, um, you know, like tear someone a new one. So it's, I think, taking care of yourself and doing your, you know, your daily rituals, which you talk a lot about, and and 
being healthy and and mindful and all the important things that we know go into being a good person, I think make combating ego, which is never easy to begin with, much more manageable. So that's almost the first step. And then it seems like you you know understanding kind of the opposite of ego, which is as you describe it, you know, being humble with your aspirations, being uh, gracious with your successes, being resilient with your failures. That's kind of like the second step. And then throughout the book, you give examples on both sides of the equation with with all three of these areas. And again, I've read the book twice now. It was so enjoyable. I personally think this is the best of your four books. What's the next so book you're going to write? Um, I'm not, doing a, not that you have you got to still promote this one and do the whole thing, but have yeah. you must have thought already about what you're doing? Yeah, writing? I do. I have a book of, of daily stoic practices that's going to come out um, in uh, later this year. Oh, excellent. And yeah. what's after that? Well, after that, then I'm doing a book on uh, like classics, like things that sell forever. Um, All right, that's interesting. I'd like to see that one. Yeah. So uh, what's an example of something that has sold forever? Like the Bible, clearly, but... Uh, yeah, the Bible sold forever, or the 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 Great Gatsby sells like four hundred thousand copies a year. the The entire publishing industry, topic. the publishing industry, for instance, exists totally on the strength of its backlist. Like your book, if you had sold Choose Yourself traditionally before before it came out, you probably would have got I don't know six figures. Let's say you got a hundred thousand dollars for that book, right? But that book has earned a lot more than a hundred thousand dollars. But you don't do any marketing for it. Meanwhile, they buy you know. Um, some reality star's memoir for $600,000 and it sells 2,000 copies. And so the entire publishing industry is driven off the back of its backlist, the titles that it bought a long time ago and then continue to sell over time. This is a fascinating topic for a book. Yeah. All right, well, first, ego is the enemy. I really think people should get it. It'll help and it's already helping me in business life. I love the all the examples, all the quotes, all the stories. Thanks once again, Ryan Holiday, for coming on the show. This is your, your third time on the show. Yeah. You're going to come on again, okay. definitely with this classics one, maybe with the Stoic Practices. We'll see. I'll <laughs> maybe. have to read it first. Okay. And uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry I was so egotistical when we first met. Uh, no, no I'm, I'm now trying to, I'm having a hard time actually finding up an, an example. I just remember thinking it at the time. So maybe I'm just, I'm, maybe I'm being arrogant in saying it. So I apologize. No, I would love to know what I did. We'll see. All right. (laughs) For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting my podcast. I just want to let you know I have a new episode for you every Tuesday. And in fact, I'm thinking of adding more episodes per week. If you subscribe, you'll never miss one. It's really easy and it helps me a lot. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Thank you so much. I really hope you do this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.